You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. Matthew is one of the synoptic gospels that is uh, written in a very thematic way uh, as opposed to in terms of deta- detail, line by line, um, including of all things um, in other books of the, uh, of the Bible, of the New Testament. Um, and the focus of our series is around the topic of discipleship, hence the title Following Jesus um, and Following the Footsteps of Jesus from the Inside Out, from the Outside In, from Blindness into Belief. Um, we want to walk away from our time in the book of Matthew knowing what he means when he says disciple. Um, we live in the Bible Belt. There's lots of different variations of what a disciple is um, and lots of different dictionaries that we would use to, to, to measure that, uh, to, to, to distinguish the health of that or take a prognosis of the health of that. Instead of listening to what people would say or what culture would say, we'd want to look at what the scripture would say. Um, and Matthew, um, as a thematic writer, uses uh, more than almost any other writer in the, in the New Testament this, this conversation about the kingdom of heaven. Um, opening up in the earlier parts of the scripture, jo- uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, starts to talk about this thing called the kingdom of heaven. Um, repent and believe the good news for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, all the other books say kingdom of God, and John doesn't even really talk about the kingdom. John tends to talk about belief, but, but Matthew seems to be talking about the, the, the disciple is not a churchgoer. That's not really what ultimately makes a disciple. That's not the beginning and the end of what a disciple is. A disciple isn't necessarily somebody that just prescribes to certain beliefs, but a disciple is somebody that is, that is walking in the kingdom of God. That's what Matthew would say in his rendition of the gospel and spending time with Jesus. And, and so the, the, the title, Covered in Dust, is that we would leave this series from January until June saturated in the gospel kingdom saturated in what it really means to be an inside-out disciple, saturated not in kind of the um, what my parents told me, what the flannel graph said, or what the kind of tradition handed down to me was, but face-to-face, covered in dust means I'm in the Lord's presence. I'm following Jesus so closely, right, that the dust is spreading up on me that I'm going to take his word for it, not my culture's word for it, or not my preconceived notions about what following Jesus would look like. Um, And so here's really what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. The first uh, segment, Matthew 5 through 7, um, was called Following Jesus from the Inside Out. And so during that that time, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and we saw Jesus teaching about a new kingdom um, that was different from the Old Testament kingdom that Moses brought when he went up to Mount Sinai. Jesus preached about this new kingdom that was going to transform people from the inside out, actually make people more righteous than the greatest law followers. Uh, because they're going to be transformed from the inside out. And people recognized this, and they said things like, this is the authority of God. We see the shmecha, the, the authority of God. As this guy teaches, it reminds me of God speaking. And then there's this second segment that we looked at, Matthew 8 through 10, where the kingdom of God stopped being about a sermon and started being about um, events. They started being about impossible things being made possible, about blind people having their sight back and lepers being made clean, um, uh, people um, having demons and demonic presences cast out of them, and Jesus would call all of that the kingdom of heaven. But now we're in this third segment, and we're going to close it today, uh, Matthew 11 through 13, where Jesus experiences kingdom rejection, where the greatest teacher and the most anointed healer that ever walked the earth was rejected by man because of blindness. 
And he would say to the Pharisees in the audience that he would run into, you know, if I did miracles like this in Sodom and Gomorrah, if I did miracles like this in pretty much any other town other than Galilee, people would have repented seven times over. And, and so there's something in the equation here that somewhere between the event and the eye, there's a block. Somewhere in the optics of the way that people are perceiving what Jesus is doing and interpreting it, something is blocking. Jesus would say, it's not your eyes that have the problem. It's your heart that doesn't see. It's your ears that hear but don't hear. It's your heart that's too hardened to understand. There's a kingdom of heaven present and, and, and potent and powerful, but there is a blindness in my midst that some, some have a rock-hard soil that the seeds of God are going to be scattered on the path and they're not going to be heard and they're not going to be seen. And so today we're actually going to answer the journal question. This is what we've put up on the, on, on the screen for our, our journals to consider. Jesus, where is pride where is bitterness? The scriptures in Matthew 13, which we'll read today, say the love of money and the worries of this world. Not, not pain, not demonic oppression, not the stock market. Where is the things of the heart? The bitterness, the envy, the love of money, these types of things that make a person be able to stand in front of God himself and not be able to see him. A person that studied the scriptures with their entire life, searching the scriptures to find me, but standing in front of Jesus, can't see the Messiah despite their nose. What would make them blind? And the journal then becomes to us that we all have a little bit of blindness in us. Where Jesus, we need to know, is the pride and the bitterness and the fear blinding me? And how is, how is things like humility and surrender and kingdom thankfulness making me eyes open to your kingdom? And so my prayer this morning as we read last week, God, about this invitation to be in your household to to. to to gather around the will of the Father. That invitation that is so independent that doesn't require a master's degree or a PhD or to see another miracle. But that invitation that just says, like, as a child, you can gather around me as a brother, as a sister, as a mother in the family of God, and you can sit at the will of the Father. We want that, Lord. We see it in that scripture. We know that it's possible not just for people that that walked in your chronology at your time era, but for now, for 2019, we want to know the will of the Father. We want to have a face-to-face -face encounter with you. We want to be covered in your dust. In Jesus' name, amen. So my first job out of college was at a Chinese restaurant called Lou's Bistro on Woodruff Road. It's right there at 385. Anybody been to Lou's Bistro on Woodruff Road? Lou's spicy chicken, Mongolian beef, sweet and sour pork, Chilean fee bass, all that stuff. Sea bass, all that stuff is a good thing. So up here is Peter Liu, the godfather of Liu's Chinese Bistro, and his brother, Andy Liu. I don't remember what his name was. Peter was the boss, Andy was the cook. They had three brothers, and he started this restaurant from scratch. And y'all know, if you have a restaurant that works in Greenville, you is rough and tumble. You got to be pretty tough. You got to have a lot of grit to make a, a restaurant go in Greenville, because Greenville is the place where restaurants come and die. I read a statistic before that said that uh, there's more per capita restaurants than any other city in America is Greenville, South Carolina. I don't know if that's true, but I could believe it. You could definitely talk me into it. There's a lot of restaurants. To make it as a mom and pop restaurant past the P.F. Chang's of the world and uh, the Red Lobsters or whatever of the world or the Sticky Fingers of the world is a big deal. So I would work lunch back when Kyra was pregnant. I would come home smelling like a sweet and, sweet and sour pork and Kyra would be like throwing up over Asian food in the way that I would smell back when she was pregnant with Rose, our first. Uh, and I would work lunch, I would work doubles, 
and uh, you know, you'd have, have a whole bunch of cash. I remember I would come home on that Pleasantburg Road on the way home because we lived in downtown Greenville, and that hot and now spicy, or that hot and now sign would come up on Krispy Kreme, and you know when you roll up there for six donuts, they're gonna upsell you for a dollar more. And before long, your boy has money in his pocket, burning a hole in his pocket, and I had 11, 11 donuts almost every single night. So I don't know how I'm still here, but I used to eat 11, 11 Krispy Kreme donuts every single night. I would work the lunch, and because the lunch you didn't get paid as much, you'd kind of sit down and hang out with Pete and his boys and the brother and all that stuff. And it was a good time. He'd just kind of like talk at you. He's, he's probably like this tall. I don't think he's, I think he's maybe like 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, and he's got that kind of like Asian swagger, that kind of like Yoda, like let me tell you some stories that you're not sure if they're like parables or if they're actually real stories. So he has this story about him and his brothers. And apparently, when they were young, I guess he was about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old, the father, okay, this is like, sounds like a Chinese parable, right? Gives all the brothers a thousand bucks, right? This is a great setup. So the father gives all the kids, one of them's eight, one of them's 11, one's 13 or whatever, and gives them all a thousand dollars to spend how they want. And the first brother goes and spends it on like the candy and, and, and the food and the movie tickets or whatever. This is like in 1976. And then the older brother, I think Peter was the middle brother, spent the money on like his girlfriend and like took her out on dates and stuff like that. But Peter, the middle brother, decided at 13 or 11 or whatever he was that he was going to take his $1,000 and invest it in the stock market. And by the time that we had had lunch to talk about uh, the maturing of that stock, he said that his $1,000 had matured to, at that time, around $400,000. Because little 11-year-old Peter Liu took his $1,000, didn't spend it on candy, didn't spend it on women, but spent it on stock for Marvel and Coke between 1976 and 2006, right when Avengers was getting started. If he has it in there now, when Disney took it over, I'm sure he's even a richer person. Um, when, you, when you have children, and when you want to see your, mature, your children mature and grow, your hope as a father, as a parent, is that your children have a vision for the long term. That they have this idea that if you, if, you, if you enjoy your stuff now, you get less enjoyment out of it. If you just kind of spend your money and your time frivolously without intent and vision, that you can have some enjoyment. But a delayed gratification in the heart of a child is a big deal because if a child gets this idea that even if I'm failing, even if it hurts, even if it's hard, if I stay committed, if I stay faithful, soon enough faithfulness will beget fruitfulness. And so somebody that's able to see that $1,000, not just as another Coke or another date with a girl, but to see that something as an investment to mature in, that child is going to see a lot of blessing in their life, let alone money or other things, right? So if the kid is in basketball and their whole deal is to like cross somebody up so they can get on House of Highlights, they're going to struggle in basketball because they're struggling to understand the long-term purpose of the game. Like the kid is not understanding the purpose of the game is not to make some kid fall down. The purpose of the game is to win the game because people that win games desire and know that they can become part of a winning culture. And if you can win games, you can win seasons and seasons can, you can win championships and championships mean notoriety. Notoriety can mean college. So if a kid can get out of the small term vision of crossing somebody up and looking cool with cool sneakers and get into the long term vision of getting rebounds, boxing out, passing the ball, they have a better chance at, uh, at increase in their life. We see this in school when I'm a high school teacher. I have kids in my 11th grade class that read at a fourth grade level. And the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because a kid that is in the fourth grade level that learns how to read in the sixth grade level, every classroom that they're in, they become saturated in the wisdom and the, and the knowledge of that classroom. But if a kid gets stuck, and if you're an educator, you've seen this, 
They get stuck long enough, they're stuck forever. They're in the fourth grade reading level, sitting in the fifth grade class, the sixth grade class, the seventh grade class, the eighth grade class, and what's sad about it is, is that they're sitting next to the kid that has the ninth grade reading level now, and the ninth grade kid is getting smarter where the fourth grade kid is getting more and more and more stuck. And so call it principle of economics, call it principle of wisdom, or whatever it may be, that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like that would be Jesus' intent, that the poor would continue to get poorer and the rich get richer, but we could all see how socially, economically, physically, in terms of health, in terms of athletics, that, that stuckness begets stuckness, and, and wealth begets wealth, for better or for worse. So Jesus has this really interesting passage at the beginning of Matthew uh, 13 that I think helps us talk about um, today's message. It says in verse 12 to his disciples, he says, whoever will be given more, whoever has, uh, whoever has, excuse me, whoever has will be given more and they will have abundance. Jesus speaking in spiritual terms, not in terms of Marvel and Coca-Cola. Whoever has some spiritual vision is going to walk into more spiritual vision. Whoever has some belief will gain in their belief. Whoever has some faith will multiply their faith. Whoever sees me will grow in intimacy with me and see me more as I spend time with me. The contrary is true in an unfortunate events which we'll read about in the Seeds and the Sower parable today. But whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken for them. Potentially it's not Jesus' intent. Potentially that's not his design. But it is the reality that Jesus is saying that spirituality is not unlike finances. That people with faith will grow in their faith and people that struggle in blindness will continue to grow in blindness. One of, my, one of my best friends in the world who's been on my heart in the last couple of weeks, me and him went to the same youth group, heard the same sermons, went to the same mission trips. We ended up praying for a building that the church was going to go build. And you know, when you write the, your, your Bible verses on the, on the floor before you put the carpet over it, we went to this kind of commencement ceremony thing for the building. We prayed for it. The lady we prayed with was super kind of gregarious in prayer. Um, kind of prayed in tongues a little bit and freaked my friend out so that he never returned. And there was a time that he kind of came back around and maybe explored a little bit. He knows about my faith. We talk about faith quite a bit, but he, his path diverged from my path. And in the times that I was in youth group, he was in other things, in bands and rock concerts, and things like that. And when I was in college, he was over in Chicago, you know, pursuing, um, pursuing film. And today is in, is in Hollywood pursuing a dream that's different from, from where I'm at. And it's interesting to see how paths can, can diverge from that. But to him, but to him, the scripture is foolishness. I mean, I haven't talked to him in a little while about it directly, but I, I assume, based on pre previous conversations, that the church is irrelevant. It's just completely irrelevant. If he was looking for an answer, which he needs, he, 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 we talk about the struggles of life, the worries of the, worry, the, the world, the love of money. Those are not unique to, to church or unchurched people. But his source of solution is completely different from mine. He, 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 he's insulated from the sensitivity of coming back to the, to, to the kingdom of God, or at least the scripture of God, for answers. And so it is that our years exponentially compounded on themselves. Our storylines continued to diverge and didn't go backwards. God is in every moment. He's closer than we ever know. And sometimes when we think we're furthest from him, he's closer, closer to us than we think. But my point is, is that we start to see in Matthew 11 through 13 a divergence of people. A private ministry and a public ministry. A ministry that is able to discern parables and a ministry uh, and, a, and a people and a crowd that become blind and confused by parables. So this is the first parable that we'll look at today. 
It says in Matthew 13 that a farmer went out to sow seeds. It says, actually, let me back up to verse 1. It says, that day Jesus went out of the house. He sat by the lake, and a large crowd gathers around him, and he gets into this boat, this pulpit, casts himself out into the water, and preaches back at the shore towards the crowd. And he preaches this saying, a farmer went out to sow seeds, and he scattered the seeds. Some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, but the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, and still other seeds fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 and 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So let me back up here. The disciples, in verse 10, uh, on the slides here for Becca, I, I went out of order. The disciples start, sort of ask him this question after he gives this parable in verse 10. Why do you speak in parables? So what you saw in the beginning setting and context of the sermon is that Jesus was in the house with the disciples that he called his family members. This intimate group of children that he invited in, 11, in, in Matthew 11 to come and take on my yoke and be a child that you might be revealed to the Father. We spoke about this last week. They gather in the house. After that meeting is adjourned, Jesus leaves the house and goes out to the beach. Now, Matthew, the writer, is painting a very specific, symbolic picture here because the crowds that gather on the shore are too many and too much. And they, they're waiting outside the way that Jesus' family was knocking at the door outside in a symbolic way because they are not yet insiders with God. Potentially, they want, they want proof of God without believing in God. Potentially, they want his hand without his heart. Potentially, they want to know about God without knowing God. They didn't come to him as children. Jesus says in Matthew 11 that some come to him as wise men uh, that want to know about God without knowing the heart of God. And so what Jesus does is he gets in the boat and he casts himself out away from the shore, which shows a, a symbolic gesture of how far these people are from God. And he begins to preach these parables. And the disciples come up to him and ask him, we assume because the scene hasn't changed, probably in a boat to come up next to him, and they whisper to him, Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? Now, the funny thing about Jesus is that, you know, Easter's coming up next Sunday, and Easter's a big deal for preachers and pastors, because you want to make sure that the Easter sermon is good as it possibly can be. You don't want the Easter sermon to be boring. Little Aunt Phyllis is coming out, Grandma's coming out. You don't want preacher messing up the Easter service. You want to make sure that Easter is clear, that Easter is kind. You want to make sure that Easter has scripture in it. You want to make sure the Easter service is clairvoyant, that it connects. But it's funny because as, as preachers in the American church, we try to make the, the sermon clear. Jesus, when he gets a bigger crowd, tends to make things more complicated and doesn't really have any apologies about that. And this is what he says to the disciples. He says, this is why I speak in parables. It actually fulfills a prophecy in Isaiah 6. He says, I speak in parables... Because people are likely to see without seeing, and though hearing, they don't really understand. This is in verse 13, if it's on the screen. In verse 14, he says, And in them, this is what the prophecy of Isaiah says, You will be ever hearing and never understanding. You will ever see, but never perceive. You will have the people's, uh, for this people's heart is calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are you, blessed are you, you with the front row tickets, you that came out to me on the boat, you that sit with me in the house, you that want my heart and not just my hand, you that want my presence and not just answers, you that don't come to me with threats but come to me with intimate relational questions, you who want me and not just the solution of your life, 
Blessed are you, you're going to get a front row seat to things that prophets didn't even see. That my intimacy with you has lent itself towards vision. That your purity of heart gave optical capacity to see the kingdom of God before it's even barely here yet, your audience to the kingdom of God. Blessed are you, he says, because I tell you the prophets and the righteous people long to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. So here's what we have, right? These parables are like these, these riddles. He would say in another passage, Jesus is kind of funny. You know, he, he knows how to tell stories. Remember T.D. Jakes said that if Jesus was alive, he might be a movie director because, because uh, he always spoke in stories that were compelling and they were uh, provoking. They like made you think. They made you like get off balance and think something you didn't think. He opened up this one parable. Uh, it's the parable of the unmerciful servant. If you look at the... the, the, the um, the money, like the, the ratio of money of what it'd be worried, you know, worth in today's scale, uh, he basically opens up this, this parable of debt of this guy that owes money to the government saying this, that here's a guy that owes 50 lifetimes of debt to the U.S. government and tells the government when the government comes to get their money from him, don't worry, I'll hit you back on Thursday. Like that's the kind of thing that he'll set a story up. He knows how to set the parable up to provoke things. And so he says to, says to these guys, there's a couple reasons why I'm telling parables, why I teach in the pedagogy of parables. Pedagogy means the way that I want to teach. It's not just what I'm teaching, but it's the method of the way that I'm teaching to get a response that I want out of the people that I want. It's not, on, it's not an accident. I'm not unclear communicator. I don't not have an outline. I, I have an idea of what I want to communicate, but there's a reason for me speaking in parables and in puzzles. And this is the reason, number one, because it's been prophesied that uh, I would speak this way. This is, this is the, the way of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is an unseen place, not unlike the Matrix in that movie, where there's a red pill and a blue pill, and unless you, unless you see it and have spiritual eyes to understand it, you will be confused. So I'm not going to dumb down the content of the kingdom of God. I'm going to give it as best I can in allegorical and analogy terms. So I'm going to speak uh, in parables because that's the way that I was commanded to speak by, by, by my father. Two, I'm going to speak in parables because parables insist questions and curiosity as opposed to knowledge and assertion. Parables demand intimacy. Parables demand questions. Parables put you off balance and question what you have so you can know what you don't know and then grow into what you need to know. Parables are the things that don't allow you to become the master of the subject ever, that always require you to lean in and the parable would mean different things at different points. Many times the parables would be something that the disciples didn't understand until after he was gone. And then they would say things like, I remembered that Jesus told us about this before it happened. The parable wasn't to be understood in application for that day. It was meant to be a confirmation for a later day that when I come upon what Jesus was talking about, I would know that he had prepared me for it all along and know his faithfulness. Parables are relational. They're not intellectual. Parables are to the heart. They're not analytical. Parables are conversational. They are not monologue. And Jesus spoke in parables on purpose, but the, the tragedy of parables is here on the screen. It represents the polarizing nature of the kingdom of heaven because they lead those that see Jesus to see him more, but they cause those that are blind to Jesus to become even more confused. I think we experience the scripture a lot this way in these, in these days. I think that the scripture has confusing things in it. I think that the critics would like to bring up different things which I haven't found really any valid assertions about this, but people will say, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Well, it doesn't because God's heart, the point of the scripture is to know God's heart and God's heart doesn't contradict itself. And so I think the scriptures become 
the number one book ever sold in the world, ever, and the most debated scripture ever, the, the most debated divine text that appears on our Facebook from people that believe it and people that don't, people that use it for God's purpose and people that use it against God's purpose, the scripture seems to be this very debated thing, but it's interesting that some people read the scriptures and find the very breath of life, and some people see the scriptures and see it as the judgmental uh, kingdom of death, judgment, and, uh, and a cosmic killjoy and legalism. It's interesting about what eyes get put on the scripture, the interpretations that that scripture brings. It's interesting the posture that we go to the scripture with on Monday morning, what we get out of it. It's interesting to see how some people, as they come to the scriptures, already antagonized, oppositional, and offended by the scriptures can find more reason for their offense. And those that know the tender heart of their God, of Yahweh, of Jesus, can come to the scripture and find the very breath of life. The scriptures, as the kingdom of God, is a polarizing thing. And it was designed to be a polarizing thing. And the reason why the scriptures aren't ABC, how to, one, two, three, steps one through ten is because the scriptures aren't meant to read in 30 minutes. They're read to, meant to be read in 90 years. And they're meant to be sought after for the heart of God and not for the solution of problems. And they're meant to be leaned into more when I run into curiosity. Trusting that my God is on the other end, wanting to answer that so that I might know his heart. You see how if I knew the answer, I wouldn't need him to understand it? You see how the parable or the scripture was, was easy and colloquial and, and dumbed down and watered down to my culture? You see how that would get me the understanding but water down the heart of God? You see when you get into verses in Ezekiel 16 or Jeremiah 29, the actual chapter, not just 29.11, you can see that God is a deep God and it would take you years of curious relational hunger and appetite to really understand the heart of God. But I, I fear that a lot of times that we use the scripture just to validate our opinions and move on and ignore the parts that we don't like. That we allow the offense of the scripture, the parts of the scripture that we don't like to cause a stumbling block and cause more blindness. The very thing that was supposed to give us vision and sight can actually cause us blindness with the wrong heart. And so the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Those who see get more vision and those who are blind get even blinder still because of this polarizing book and because of these polarizing parables. So this is what Jesus says. He says, there's a farmer who scatters seed. And he says, there's different types of soil. 75% of this soil doesn't have effect of the seed. As a farmer, that's not a great ratio. As a farmer, you're casting seed on all types of soil, and the farmer is a bit of a gambler in a way. The farmer, unlike the way that we work with widgets and, and, and product lines and branding and, and, and communication, the farmer works at surrender uh, posture and level with God and with nature. The farmer knows that sometimes you can cast some seed and have a lot of fruit, and sometimes you can cast a lot of seed and have not, many, not much fruit. But Jesus has this parable, and he says to his disciples, after the fact, when they come up to him for the behind-the-scenes look going towards him with the boat, he re-explains the parable in a way that they understand. As their proximity grows to Jesus, their clarity grows as well. Those that were on the beach far from God got more offended and left. Those that came closer to him at the parable to ask the question in a relational way got more revelation. And Jesus says, you could have a fruit of 30 and 60 and 90-fold. 30-fold would have been well, one bushel for, for, for every seed is basically saying that's a pretty good crop. 60-fold was a great crop, but 90-fold, or 100-fold rather, would have been an impossible crop. So we have a new dialogue for these people that came to him in the boat, 
and came to him in the house to understand the heart of God behind the parable. And the bus is leaving the station and some people are still on the shore. And we see what started as the great Sermon on the Mount. Here's what the new kingdom is going to look like. Here's the new vision of what anger is going to look like and what lust is not going to look like and what jealousy is not going to look like. This is what the new kingdom of heaven is going to be like. Everybody had applause and distinction for the authority of the kingdom of God, but now he's opening up the secrets of how to live in the kingdom of God. He's opening up the first, uh, the first audience to how exactly the kingdom of God is going to transform people from the inside out. And this is how he, he talks about it. He says, it's hard to explain in physical terms the unseen to the seen, but this is what it is. It's a seed on a path that you might bear fruit. And this is what our value statement is here at our church, is that beholding, seeing God is not just to see him and applaud. Beholding is to draw near to him, to see him and to know him, and to know him is to love him. And so nobody's a spectator and an arguer and a peer with God. God is who he is, and God is the I am. And beholding him, to see him is to love him and to draw near to him relationally, to go out to him on the boat and not be stuck with our friends on the shore. And belonging leads to a believing. And before long, these kingdom ambassadors, these apostles, the 12 that were listed in Matthew 10, go out and start to see fruit. They don't only really applaud when Jesus does his stuff, they move out of the cinema and into the classroom and we start to see how the kingdom of God is not just something to be applauded, but something to be participated in. And so the people that are in the boat are not only going to be audience and fans, but they're becoming family members and followers of Jesus so they might bear fruit, much fruit and fruit that remains. What they don't know is coming is he's going to say, there's a day that I'm going to leave you and it's better that I go because the Holy Spirit is going to get done more through you than he has done yet through me. Greater things will you do in the kingdom. And meanwhile, there are people on the shore that don't know the first. And blindness has now led to brokenness. And brokenness has led to bitterness. And bitterness has led to unbelief. And unbelief has led to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus warned us is the unforgivable sin. You see the divergence here. You see the importance of proximity, of presence. You see how, you see how principle is not the only thing, how relationship will matter in the end for how we go about reading these scriptures. You can, you can, you can begin to see how, uh, how the Old Testament law can't be fulfilled without the power of the kingdom of God. Because this is what he says in Mark, right? If you don't understand the parable of the seed and the sower, you can't understand anything past this curriculum. It's like learning to read in first grade. If you do not understand the seed and the sower, you will not understand anything else. It's a parable that unlocks the key to all the other parables. And that is what? That God is the gardener and your heart is the soil. And you're not here just to applaud God, but you're here to receive seed and create fruit, to be like Jesus, to walk in the path of your rabbi. The kingdom of heaven is opening up, and the Sermon on the Mount is not enough. Just memorizing how to be more meek will not take care of it. Fruit, fruit, kingdom fruit, fruit that lasts, fruit that's miraculous, it's a bumper crop, fruit that remains, much fruit, real fruit, real fruit does not come from discipline and duty and paradigm shifts. Real fruit comes from power. Real fruit comes from intimacy with Jesus. Real fruit comes from a seed that is collected in our heart, depends on the seed to raise up a crop, defends that seed, trusts in the seed to be good enough that faithfulness over years would beget fruitfulness. And so I have a quick outline that I'm going to put on the screen here. And we had an activity, but I'm afraid we have to skip it because I preach for too long. 
But I want to I show you I want to show you what happens when you allow the, the fruit, uh, when you allow the, the key of the, of the sower parable to open and unlock all the parables. There's eight parables altogether in Matthew 13. And there is a theme, there's a message he wants his disciples in the boat and his family in the house to understand. There's a message he wants them to get with their first lesson. He opens their eyes. He allows their vision to grow even clearer as the ones on the shore grow even dimmer and duller. He wants to make use of that vision so that they understand clearly even more what the kingdom of heaven is like. And at the end of chapter 13, he makes them nod their head. Do you understand what this means? And they say, yes. Yes, we do. And now what was just law has become spirit and what has been Old Testament has become New Testament and what, what has become mosaic is now becoming kingdom. And, and the fans are not just fans anymore. They're followers. They're family members. They're growing in fruit that remains. This is what we see. So we got eight parables on the screen. The first one we looked at, this is the point. Good heart soil bears good kingdom fruit. That's the whole point. If you read it, I'm going to give you the crib, the, the crib notes, the, the spark notes of it. Don't read it. Then there's another uh, parable about the weeds, and it says that God is going to judge kingdom fruit at the end of time. That looking at fruit now is a bit of a waste of time because only God judges fruit, and we won't know it until the end. There's going to be weeds and wheat that grow up in the same field, and we might think looking to the left and to the right that the weed is wheat, but it's not. And when we get to the end of time, everything that's not wheat will get burned up, and so kingdom fruit doesn't get judged until the end. He's got another parable about a mustard seed. Where the kingdom comes in a small invisible seed, but it grows up so great that it gets a tree that, that birds can land on. That scripture was uh, uh, reminiscent of, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the book of Daniel chapter 4, where uh, he, he aspired to see Babylon become a kingdom that birds and nations could rest upon. Jesus is saying, where's Babylon? It's gone and destroyed. The kingdom of God has started as a mustard seed, but will be greater than the kingdom of Babylon. It'll endure longer than that. Then he says, the kingdom is like a little bit of leaven that goes into the dough. And unlike the seed of the mustard seed, doesn't just affect the plant and the organism that grows out of it, but actually affects the thing that it's put into, which is the dough that rises over time. So the kingdom of heaven is not just impacting the church, but the kingdom of heaven is impacting the world, is what he's saying. And that the great revivals that happened in our country didn't just stop in the church doors, but led to abolitionism, women's rights movements, education reform, so on and so forth. That the, that the, the kingdom activity in the church can actually impact the, the kingdom activity out of the church and change a nation and change a school and change a family. The kingdom is costly but worth it. It's the man who finds a treasure in the field and realizes the treasure is worth more than all that he has. The kingdom of heaven, it says, is like a pearl that's more expensive than Get this, all of the other pearls that men and women look for, lots of pearls, but then they find that one pearl, the pearl of great Christ, price that is greater than all the other kingdoms combined. He says the kingdom is going to come at the very end of time when a net goes and catches a bunch of fish, kind of like when Jesus calls Peter to go and fish for men, that there's going to be lots of people that, that fish and get caught. But kind of like the seed, it can sprout up a little bit, but in the end it won't. It won't make it. And there's some fish that are tossed back, is what he says in that one. And very lastly, the kingdom is like a teacher who is able to bring out of his house both old and new revelation that some people look for God everywhere and can't find him anywhere. And some people can find God everywhere they go and anywhere they look. 
that they can look at CNN and they can look at history and they can look at the Old Testament and they can look at the New Testament and they can look at this denomination and that denomination and they have eyes and vision to see that, that our hope is not downcast, that Easter is every day and resurrection is still moving and the kingdom of God is happening. They're not blind and horse blinded to only what they see. They, they're able to see the full horizon of what the kingdom of God is like. And here's what I feel that Jesus would say to us today if we had eyes to see and a heart that would want to understand. If we did not reject him and really wanted to know the heart of God, even if it meant we'd have to wait on the hand of God. This is what I feel like all of the kingdom parables are saying in Matthew 13. What the Pharisees miss and what the disciples get. This is what he says. I believe Jesus teaches us in Matthew 13 that the fruit of the world is fast but fake. The fruit of the world is hurried and attractive and articulate. The fruit of the world is, is fancy and alluring. It happens in church and out of church, but the fruit of the world has always been the same. It's, it's flashy, but it has no substance. It's not made by fire. It's not tested. You'll look here and there and think that God is over here and over there, and you'll think the kingdom looks like something that everybody's talking about, but maybe you're wrong. Maybe it's more invisible like a seed of leaven. Maybe it's more invisible like a seed of a mustard seed that the kingdom of the world is cheap, fast, easy, comfortable, but without value. But if we were to understand the kingdom from the context of the boat and not the shore, as a kingdom disciple, this is what we'd see. The kingdom is more slow and sure, small and significant, costly, but worth it. That the kingdom of God is, is not a microwave. The kingdom of God is a crockpot of waiting and soaking and questioning. It's slow and it's humble and it's low and invisible. It's more prevalent in things outside of the book deal or what happens after the book or after the sermon or after the conference or after the prayer time. We can see kingdom fruit sprout up in instantaneous, spontaneous ways, little green shoots, but really what determines the fate of that little seed is not whether it shoots up in an encounter, but a lifetime of encounters would make the difference for that seed. That the kingdom of heaven can't be judged to the left or to the right on Instagram. What, what this person on the right or what this person on the left is doing, I can't judge the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is much more subversive than that. It's not measured by likes. It's not measured by the cheap things of the world. The kingdom of heaven uh, is a long, enduring fruit that requires sowing and reaping and waiting. The kingdom of heaven is small and it's low and it's slow and sometimes boring, but it's subversively powerful and remaining. Kyra, my wife, when she moved here in Greenville, used to go to First Assembly Church here in Greenville and got involved with a special needs ministry called the Ark in 2001. Me and Kyra were killers on those puppets. I'm telling you what, don't put me on a puppet. I will murk you on the puppets. I'm good. I'm anointed at the puppets. I just want you to know, in case you have a puppet ministry, I'm on it. It's a simple joy in a room full of special needs, adults and adolescents singing to God. David Heaston, the pastor that married me and Kyra, is a meek and mild man. It says in the scriptures that if Jesus walked down the street, there is nothing that would draw you to them because of their, his charisma. I would say David is a meek man in that way, but a powerful leader. And every day he'd open up the church 
There's no tithe. He's a bivocational pastor. There's no book deal. There's no Instagram. Nobody's paying attention to it. Just humble people low and slow, day after day. Kingdom of God, loving the one in front of you. Low and slow, not, fat, not flashy and fast, but low and slow. Watching the leaven take root. Watching the seed take root 30 and 60 and 90 fold. Recently, I shared the story. It was 2018. One of the people that we, that we got to know through the ark, his name is Ronnie. And I think he just turned late 30s, maybe 36 or 37. He shares the same birthday as Kyra. Maybe you guys have seen him on my Instagram. They blow out the candles together every birthday. It's awesome. Ronnie was left um, on the side of a road by uh, his mom who couldn't take care of him. And he was brought up in the system and by the grace of God led into the church and was born again at a young age and served the Lord faithfully and still serves the Lord faithfully every single week. Ronnie gets a call from his mom telling him that she's sick. Ronnie has the heart of a child because he's blessed that way and he goes to his mom and forgives her, cares for her in the hospice, leads her to Christ before she dies. Holds the funeral for her and sees the family recognize the gospel, the kingdom gospel, in his life. That's a 17-year-old testimony. The kingdom of God doesn't just crop up because somebody just decided to pray just, just right there. The kingdom of God doesn't just crop up because somebody had a, a great Twitter thing to say. The kingdom of God is an enduring, low and slow commitment. And what he wants his disciples to know, the very first message, is that if you want to be my disciple and you want to go on all the boats and be in all the houses with me, what you have to understand is this is slow and not fast. And it's not flashy. It has an integrity and a substance to it that demands a faithfulness before it ever crops up into fruitfulness. What he wants you to know is that if you're 20, it's not time to have the fruit of a 50-year-old. And if you're 30, it's not time to have the fruit of a six-year-old because the kingdom of God is not fast and flashy. The kingdom of God is lower and slower than we think. And in a time when it's time to sow, we can't get our eyes on things of reaping because it's not a reaping season yet. It's a sowing season. It's a listening season. It's a learning season. It's a getting in front of the scriptures and demanding that I know the heart of God without getting offended season. These are the small, predictable things that make the kingdom of God Grow. This is our intentional question this morning. And then we'll close. Consider the parables of the kingdom. Read through them. That was my activity that we didn't get to do. We're going to do a pair where you talk about the parable and maybe talk about the parable with a friend after church this morning. But how is the kingdom guiding you to live the low and slow and sacrificial rather than the fast and flashy and comfortable. This is the message that Jesus wanted his disciples to know. It was the first time he had their attention. It's the first time they were going to go from consumer to producer. It's the first class. It's the orientation day. What's Jesus going to say? Is he going to say, pray louder? Is he going to say, buy a bunch of stuff and go get impressed, go impress people? Is he going to say, go and give slick sermons? The first message that he wants his disciples to know is this is going to take longer than you think. This is going to be harder than you think it is. I want to tell you this because I don't want you to lose heart. 
I don't want you to think that because the fruit isn't springing up or because there's weeds next to you that look like it and the person next to you who isn't living in the kingdom seems like they're living the same kind of life as you. I don't want you to get discouraged or distracted by that. I don't want you to be a seed that gets plucked up and scorched and withered and choked. I want you to be a seed that bears fruit, much fruit and fruit that remains, and it's going to take longer than you would ever think. That faithfulness begets fruitfulness. What is it like to live in a lower and slower sacrificial way rather than fast and flashy and comfortable if that was your question, your journal question, Jesus, why am I in a season where I can't see? Why am I in a season where I can't hear? It looks like everywhere I'm going that people can see God except for me. And there was lots of answers that we talked about. With John the Baptist, potentially, it's expectation and offense. With the religious people, maybe it's your rules and regulations. With it, if it's the Holy Spirit and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, maybe you're trying to box in the kingdom of God and you're looking for God in all the wrong places. But the thing that Jesus says to us when we go up to his boat and ask him, Jesus, why do some people see and some people don't see? He says, this is why. Because the kingdom of God is not fast and flashy. The kingdom of God is low and slow. Maybe seeing and hearing God is about going slower and lower than you'd ever think. Maybe seeing God is about going to the lowest place in the room. Maybe hearing and seeing God is because you're ahead of God and he's behind you because you're trying to get the thing to happen faster than you want it to be. And that's why the, the continued expectation and disappointment continues to hit you. Maybe there's a season of presence. It's a season of rest. It's a season to be thankful that you're not the sower, you're just the soil. It's a season that recognizes that if a kingdom is going to be greater than Babylon, that he's got it under control. It's a season to recognize that only your portion is to be faithful to the word that he's given you. And we overestimate what we can do done in a year and we completely underestimate what God can do in our lifetime. And we want things to be instant, but God does things slowly. This is the message that I feel like he wants to tell us is if we're blind in a season of unhearing, then the answer that we need is to draw near to him as he draws near to us, to have conversational relationship with him and go slower than we ever thought to see more fruit, much fruit and fruit that remains. I've gone over my time. Let me read us the gospel moment and I will pray for us as we close. The gospel says that the gospel is the good news. Would y'all stand with me, please? The gospel is this good news. That Jesus came to bring us from spiritual death into spiritual life. That Jesus loves us and died for our sins so that we can have close relationship with God. There's a reason why we read this every time. The reason why we read it is because if we don't remember this fact, our why gets skewed. We leave the place trying harder to go read the Bible or whatever part of the message you were awake for this morning. To go and do it on our own. And this invitation says we can't. And this invitation says that it's not about Wisdom, it's about power. And this invitation says that none of us are closer to Jesus than anyone else other than the blood of Jesus. And so if you feel distant from God, your answer is the blood of Jesus first before anything. Your distance from God and your closest from God to God is, 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 is handled by the blood of Jesus in the drawing near. And so this is what it says, for our sins so that we can have close relationship with God for eternity. It would just take a prayer from you, a simple yes. A simple, I don't know, take me into my next step. A simple, show me what I don't know. That's the prayer of a faithful child. If you trust that Jesus' death is the only way to spiritual life, if you know that it's the only pearl, not any other pearl, but that kingdom of heaven, if you know the name of Jesus is the name above every other name, and you call out to him, and you ask him to draw near to you, he will draw near to you, and he will give you spiritual life. The greatest wealth that anyone can have is the kingdom of heaven. You can receive eternal life and abundant life today through prayer. Would you pray with me? If that is you, which it is, it's all of us. And Jesus, we thank you for your kingdom of heaven as you've taught us in Matthew 11 through 13. We do want to be seers. We want to see and see more, God. We want to invest our seed to go and multiply. We don't want to be, we want to be dead or stagnant. We want to take what we hear. The scripture would say, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
today, act, respond. And so we respond um, to your death, burial, and resurrection. It's your power in the room that has not left us alone. And so we respond to your power. We respond to your spirit. And we want to walk out in a kingdom fruit, not a fleshly, worldly fruit, in a slow kingdom fruit that we might make something of this life, that we would bear a fruit that would remain and endure. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.